everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Today I want to talk about a story from Arthurian times called Percival, Percival and the Fisher King, about Percival's quest for the Holy Grail. And this is a story that I've told before. What I'm going to do today is going to be a little bit of a paraphrase. So I invite you to find the longer versions. They're on volume six of Myths and Stories from Myth of the Mojave. And there's one on Blisters on the Way to Bliss on that album. These are albums that you can find in the Bandcamp archives. Now, these different tellings are going to be situated in a different context, different insights drawn. And that's because you can't exhaust a story (laughs) with just one experience. Believe me, I've gone back to some of these over and over and over again. The fact is, as uh, one of my old professors, David Miller, said, myths don't ground they open. Myths don't ground, they open. They open our perspective. They open our hearts. They open up possibilities. And that is one of the healing aspects of mythology and of work with the old stories, that they break things open. They can help us see the self-constructed boxes and give us a hammer to beat our way out. Another healing aspect is meaning. It's often been said that no matter what happens to you, if you have the right context, that is, if you have the right story, you can survive it. And you can survive it because the experience has meaning. It's meaningful. It has meaning. What you've experienced matters, in a sense, beyond the personal, because others have experienced it. I mean, hey, (laughs) there's a story about it. But it means more than that, um, because when we talk about meaning in a story, we're not talking about something that's definitive or predictive. When I say that a story lends meaning or a story is meaningful, I don't mean that you're told what something means or what a story means, but that as a carrier of values, you can find or make meaning out of a story. You can discover or better articulate what you value also, what matters to you, what you love and will organize your life around. It's so important to know this, (laughs) the meaning that you find in a story. If you uncover the values underneath It's a pathway to purpose. And yet, many people don't know this. They don't know, consciously know, what their values are. And going on that search, figuring that out for yourself, articulating it for yourself, that's not something that everyone is taught. It's certainly not something that mainstream culture encourages. The world that we live in now is full of people who want to tell us what's important and how to live. But a story, a story can show you 
If you didn't have somebody uh, highlight this task for you as part of becoming yourself, a story can show you if you reflect on it. And this is, as I say, another healing and teaching aspect of the meaning inherent in the old stories and the ones that are known collectively. Now, this might all sound a little bit abstract and kind of heady or everything, so let me give you an example. Uh, I've told a story called How Coyote Brought Fire to the People. You can find that in the Bandcamp archives too, by the way. And in this story, Coyote, Trickster Coyote, organizes all of the animal people into a relay team. And this relay team then manages to steal fire from the Skookums who live up on a high mountain and uh, bring it down into the village where all the animal people are going to be able to use it and take possession of it. And in one group that I told this story to, people very quickly focused on how each one of the animals did what it could. The ones that could run fast, ran fast. The ones that could swim, swam. The ones that hopped, hopped. And the effect of all of these contributions was that an important deed was accomplished. An important tool was acquired for the whole community. And as the discussion developed, this group gathered in that moment realized how much juice this particular part of the story had for them, which then led them to realize how much they value collaboration and the desire to be part of a community project. And not only the desire to be part of a community project, but to find a way to contribute what they were capable of doing and valuing that themselves. Now, this might all seem rather obvious, but if you have an insight like this (laughs) and it sticks with you and feeds you, feeds your process, then it can become a very valuable touchstone. Now, values and purpose, those two themes lie at the heart of the story of Percival. In fact, you could say that the Holy Grail is the thing that you value most. Your highest aspiration or your deepest longing, maybe it's the self with a capital S, or knowledge of the one, the beloved, the divine. That's up to you to decide. The Holy Grail is something that you would devote your life to acquiring. And so you see, very closely connected to purpose. Now, I told this story recently to a group of civilians, active duty soldiers, and veterans at the Joshua Tree Music Festival, and it has stayed with me. The question that that particular group had gathered to consider was how mythology could help us heal the wounds of war. So we began with a discussion of those wounds. At one point, A young man said that he had a powerful, haunting regret. And this word, regret, resonated within the group. We also talked about the task of making meaning and how that is an individual task. In times past, in more traditional cultures and communities, the meaning was more handed down given along with the story. 
And as long as it works, it works. But when it stops working, it stops working. (laughs) And right now, we're in a rather difficult period in Western culture and around the world, pretty much, it seems, in that uh, we need to be free from dogmas that are stifling the creative evolution of who we are and of our societies. But at the same time, we aren't terribly skilled at creating those meanings for our own selves. Again, these old stories can be tools for us if we don't look for, at, to them to give us the, e, the answer, but we use them to help us find an answer. And this dilemma, this opportunity and also difficulty uh, that we're living with right now because we don't have one prescribed story and meaning and object to life. That theme is also part of the story of Percival. The story was first written down at a time when our modern concept of the individual as a person with the freedom to think and love and follow his or her own conscience was first emerging. This is something that Joseph Campbell talks about in his handling of this story. And as I say, because it is connected to conscience and value and purpose, it's a tremendous opportunity, and it's also very difficult. This story and the emergence of this concept of the individual, that was several hundred years ago, and we are still in the cultural process. Well, being with this group of people, with this theme of the individual need to make meaning and this notion of regret led me to tell the story of Percival to this group. And I think you'll see why that is. Though as always, I encourage you to tend to your own moments as I'm paraphrasing this story. Uh, And let your response to the story be important for you. So when the story begins, we have this young man named Percival. And he has been living his entire life deep, in the heart of the remote woods with only his mother. Only his mother. And, of course, she has taken very good care of her darling young son. But now one day he is out hunting by himself, and he sees this incredible sight. He sees this bright light flashing silver on something through the trees, and he sees colored banners waving, and he has no idea what this is. It's five knights who are riding their horses through the woods, but he thinks maybe they're angels, which is something that his mom has told him about. And so when these five knights get closer, he falls down on his knees in front of them and looks up at them and says, oh, are you angels? Are you angels? And uh, the leader of the knights motions for him to get up and says, "Uh, no, young man, we're not angels, we're knights. And of course, they think this is rather strange that he could be so naive. And they have a little bit of conversation with him. And uh, Percival says, well, how do you get to be a knight? And they tell him that King Arthur makes knights. And he asks them where he can find King Arthur. And they say, well, you can find him at his court in Carlisle, and then they ride on. Now, Percival is so excited about this, he forgets all about hunting, and he goes straight home and tells his mother 
that he's seen the knights. And he tells her, furthermore, that he is going to go and find King Arthur and become a knight too. His mother tries to discourage him from this. My darling young son, she says, you have been raised here without a father or even an uncle because your father and your uncle were knights and they were killed. It's a very dangerous profession. So I beg you, please don't go. Stay here safe with me. But he could not be dissuaded. This was the call of destiny, you see. He could not be dissuaded, and so eventually she made him a set of clothes and packed up some food, and he got on his pony, and he was ready to go. She said, okay, since you're going to go, let me give you a little bit of advice. Honor the ladies and come to their aid. Never take more than a kiss or a ring as a token. Learn the names of your companions, and when you see a church, that's God's house. So you go inside and pray for honor and for joy. And Percival kissed his mother goodbye and said, yes, I've got it all. I'll take your advice and rode off down the road. He was very impatient to go and find King Arthur. And uh, he turned around once and looked back over his shoulder, and he saw that his mother had collapsed in the doorway, but He was very intent on his errand and didn't think he was going to be gone very long, so he kept on riding. After a little while, we don't know how long, he came to a clearing, and there was a very beautiful scarlet and gold pavilion, you know, a big tent set up in the center of it. And Percival thought it was so beautiful that it must be a church. So he rode up to it, and he just rode right inside the tent, and he found a beautiful young woman and a table spread with a sumptuous feast. And kind of remembering the advice of his mother, he kisses the young lady, notices that she has a golden ring, and pulls it off of her finger and puts it on his own. And she's frightened. I mean, it's just, who the hell is this? And then she realizes that he's he's just some sort of a fool. He seems totally harmless. And he sits down at her table and starts eating. And she says, you know, um, I'm waiting here for my night. And if he comes along and finds you here, he's going to be very upset. And so you really need to go. She knew that if her night came, he would kill Percival And she urged him, and finally he got done eating, and he got up and said, thank you, and got on his horse and rode off, thinking, oh, you know, life is grand, not understanding anything about the experience that he had just had. Now, he rode on for a little while longer, and we're in story time, so we don't know what that means exactly. But at some point, he came to another clearing, and he saw a fine gray castle in the middle of it, off in the distance, And as he drew near the castle, a very large knight in a full suit of red armor came riding towards him. And Percival immediately fell in love with the armor and thought to himself he had to get a suit of fine red armor like that. And when the big knight got up to him, he stopped and said, Who are you? And Percival said, Well, I'm called Darling Young Son. And I'm on my way to see King Arthur and become a knight. Well, the Red Knight laughed and laughed and laughed at this. He had never seen anybody so ridiculous. 
And he held up a gold cup that he was holding in his hand and said to Percival, well, I just stole this gold goblet from King Arthur, and I spilled a little bit of wine on the queen, and so they're not too happy back there. But you just go on ahead. That's King Arthur's castle, all right. And uh, when you get there, tell him that I said to send his bravest knight out here to fight me or expect to lose his kingdom. Now, Percival rode on to the castle, and the drawbridge was down, so he went on inside. And he entered the great hall and just rode on his horse all the way up to the table where King Arthur was sitting, lost, deep in thought. And the king didn't even notice him until Percival's pony nudged his elbow, and then he looked up with the start, and <laughs> here was this young kid on a horse in his hall, and Percival said, Are you King Arthur? And Arthur said, Yes, I am, and who are you? Well, I'm called Darling Young Son. And uh, I'm here to become a knight. Can you make me a knight? Well, the whole thing was ridiculous. And Arthur was about to say no. It was clear this young man was way too rough around the edges to be a knight, although he was brave. And then a young woman of the court, a young woman who had not smiled or laughed for six years, started to laugh. And this seemed really strange because it was said that she would only laugh when she was in the presence of the greatest knight in the world. Now, King Arthur was not one to ignore signs like this, and he sensed that something strange must be going on, even though Percival seemed like just some naive, young, homespun. So he said, okay, uh, I will make you a knight, but remember that this is only the beginning. It's really adventures that make a man a knight. And at this, Percival told him that he had an adventure in mind, that he intended to go back out and find the knight with the red armor and uh, duel him and win the armor because he wanted the red armor. And Arthur didn't think this was a very good idea, but he couldn't convince Percival to abandon the plan. So after Percival left, he sent one of his pages out after him to watch and see what happened. When Percival rode out of the castle, the Red Knight was there waiting for the king's contender. And when he saw Percival, he started laughing and said, Oh my God, that's you again, huh, darling young son? And Percival said, It's not funny. Lower your lance. Let's go. I'm, I want your red armor. And they started fighting. And the knight knocked Percival off of his horse. The young man grabbed his wooden spear and threw it in the direction of the red knight and happened to spear the other knight through the eye and kill him. So then he got up and started tugging on the armor and trying to figure out how to get it off, and it was a very complicated suit of clothing. He had never seen such a thing before, so he couldn't get it off. And the page came out and showed him how to take the armor off and how to put it on again. He urged Percival to take the padded silk suit that the knights typically wore underneath the armor, and Percival wouldn't do it. He did not want to replace the clothing that his mother had given him. And so, suited up, he rode on. And not long after this, he came to another castle. 
And when he rode up to this castle, he found an older man walking back and forth on the drawbridge, and this man, who was named Lord Gournemont, also questioned Percival about who he was and what he was doing, and was also told that he was called Darling Young Son and that he had just become a knight of King Arthur's court. And Gournemont quickly ascertained that Percival knew absolutely nothing about being a knight and offered to teach him a few things. So Percival stayed with Gournemont for a little while, and Gournemont taught him how to handle his weapons. Uh, he gave him a better horse. Uh, he told him, showed him how to take his armor off and on again. And there was really quite a lot more to cover, but Percival was anxious to get home to his mother. And so when he was about to leave, Gournemont said, okay, let me give you just a little bit of advice. Never slay an unarmed knight who begs for mercy. Assist women and offer them your protection. Go to church and pray for mercy and protection. And finally, don't ask so many questions. It makes you sound foolish. Percival listened to his teacher's advice and nodded, and then he set off once again for home. And Percival rode on. We don't know how long. Maybe he spent a month in the woods, maybe two, maybe more. One day he was riding alone in a lonely country with no road, no path, and near dusk he came to a wide river. As he was going up and down the river looking for a place to cross, he spied two men in a boat. One of them was rowing, and the other one was fishing. And the men saw him and called out to him and told him that there wasn't a bridge for many miles and offered him refuge at their nearby castle. Percival rode in the direction that they pointed, into a valley between some hills. And for a while, he didn't see anything. And he, just when he was starting to get really annoyed at the men and thinking that they had given him the wrong directions, he spied the turrets peeking through the trees and went to the castle. And this was a grand castle, a very fine castle. The drawbridge was lowered, and so he went in, and when he got off his horse and went into the hall, he found that it was filled with people in fine clothes who were all gathered around various tables eating, and the lord of the castle, who was none other than the fisherman, was laying on a couch in front of a blazing fire. Forgive me, said the king, for not standing up. I was wounded many years ago, and I can't walk or stand. And the two men talked for a while. The king gave Percival a sword as a gift, and while they were talking and eating, an incredible thing happened. A door opened at the far end of the hall, and this procession emerged. There was a young man carrying a beautiful, huge candelabra. And then there was another young man carrying a lance in front of him. And when they got close, Percival saw that a single drop of blood emerged from the lance and rolled down and dropped onto the young man's hand. And he was astonished at this. And then a beautiful maiden came in and followed this bleeding lance, and she was holding a golden grail that was decorated with beautiful gemstones, and it shimmered with such a dazzling light that for a moment 
it didn't even seem like the candles in the room could be lit. And this procession crossed the hall and then went into a room on the opposite side, and then the door was closed. Well, Percival was consumed with great curiosity about this, but he remembered what Gornemont said about asking questions and appearing foolish, and so he didn't say anything. This procession went by three times, and every time he wondered about it and refrained from asking about it. And finally, it was late, and the king was groaning with pain and ready to go to bed, and so he said good night, and all the people dispersed, and a bed was made for Percival there in the hall. And as he lay there in the darkness, he recalled the mysteries of the evening and decided that he would ask a servant about it in the morning, and then he fell asleep. But the next morning when he woke up, he was completely by himself. His clothes were cleaned, his armor was shined, his horse was fed and saddled and waiting for him, but there was absolutely no sign of anyone else anywhere. So he got on his horse and left the castle. And as they were going over the drawbridge, it started going up. And his horse had to leap at the last minute so that they wouldn't get trapped. And when he got to the other side, he like turned around and looked around, you know, trying to figure out who had raised the drawbridge on him, and he still didn't see anybody. And he called out, and nobody answered. So at last he rode on into the woods. And he hadn't come far when he came across a beautiful young woman sitting on the ground, cradling the corpse of a dead knight in her arms. Can I help you? Percival asked her, and she said, Well, only if you can bring him back to life. But where did you come from? There is no lodging anywhere nearby. Well, there's a castle just over those hills, said Percival. And then the young woman shook her head. No, you know, uh, you must have been in the Grail Castle, in the company of the Fisher King. Tell me, did you see the lance that bleeds? And Percival nodded, yes, I, he had seen that. Did you see the grail? She asked, and he nodded again. He had seen the lance and the grail. These are very great mysteries, she observed. Tell me, what did you do? Mm, nothing, said Percival. I did nothing. Oh, well, now that's bad news, said the young woman. If you would have asked a question, you could have healed the king and his lands. But now the suffering is going to continue. Who are you? What is your name? And Percival said, I'm Percival of Wales. And for the first time, you see, he knew who he was (laughs) on the heels of this tremendous mistake. Percival didn't know what to make of this young woman's words. But filled with some amount of foreboding, he rode on, and he eventually connects back up with King Arthur and King Arthur's court, where he is heralded as a hero for having killed the Red Knight. And Percival settles in to the court and joins in on the, with the feasting that's taking place And as he's sitting there at the table, suddenly, whew, a wind comes along and blows the doors open. And a loathly lady, that is a very ugly old woman, comes riding in on a donkey. 
and she rides through the party straight up to the table, right straight to where Percival is sitting, and says to him, You, Percival, have screwed up. You were there in the presence of the Grail. You could have asked a question. You could have saved everybody, and you didn't do it, because you are a fool and a coward. When she was done berating him, she turned around and rode out. Percival got up and said to the king, I've got to find the grail, and I swear that I will not sleep in a bed or stay in the same place for more than two nights in a row until I have found it. And he left to begin his quest in earnest for the Holy Grail. Now that's where Christian de Troyes, who wrote this story down, ended it. Whether or not he planned on continuing it, we don't know. Others finished the story, and some have Percival finding the grail. But what I'm focused on right now is regret. Regret and his fear of looking foolish. You know, that's not something he was concerned about at the beginning. He was so naive and oblivious that he didn't realize that other people thought he was foolish. And you can't feel foolish if you don't know that you are. And then he takes advice. He lets someone else tell him the significance of his habit, his questioning habit, and pass judgment on it. Now, this isn't always a bad thing. We do need to get feedback. When we're young, there's a lot we don't know. But we do need to be discerning in the advice that we accept. And this discernment, this comes from self-knowledge. It's not until after he fails that he knows his name. And he doesn't really grasp the full significance of his error until the loathly lady calls him out. Now, the loathly lady is a figure that appears in other stories, too. She's a kind of truth-teller which takes us back to the traditions of witches or crones, the ancient feminine, the makers of kings, and women in general as recognizers of talent and especially leadership. This is a theme in the story of Iron John, which is a story that I've told on this program, and many other stories, the Celtic tradition and Native American traditions, and likely others, recognize that women, the feminine, as being closer to the mysteries of life and death, tasked with the responsibility of nurturing community and family and all relationships, including the human relationship to the earth, that given the responsibility of maintaining those relationships, of valuing those connections upon which life depends, that they are the ones best suited to recognize who should be leading the community. The heads of culture must be the ones who meet the approval of those who know the conditions of life best. Percival is called out by someone he should listen to and respect, and he does. So there's another step towards wisdom. And then he lets regret drive him. Drive him to rectify the error and to heal. He doesn't hide. I find that interesting. Regret and the shame that comes with that is often something that we hide 
or try to run from. And I imagine that Percival learns from it. And his quest becomes a gift for everyone. Our common fear of looking foolish that stops us from asking important questions also stops our unfolding. It takes a huge amount of courage to become who we are meant to be. And there's something really poignant in the story of Percival, in this open-hearted young man leaving home, uh, answering, as he should, the call to adventure, making mistakes, stumbling, learning, learning more, revisiting, and then making a very important mistake. A mistake that, as it turns out, is connected to his purpose. The error wasn't in not asking the question the first time. It would have been in staying at Arthur's table and turning away from the words of the loathly lady. I said earlier that if you want to listen to longer versions of this story, you can find them on Volume 6, Myths and Stories, and on Blisters on the Way to Bliss on those two albums. And I want to add here that that's part of the value of the archives and of joining the Bandcamp community. If you pay that 5 or $10 a month, in addition to supporting me and the perpetuation of this program, you have access to all of those archives. You can go back and listen to the stories that call to you over and over again. And believe me, you will uncover new meanings and insights. You can develop a relationship with the story. There's an index of the programs and the stories that's organized by album on the uh, Myth and the Mojave website to help you find what you need. Now, before I go, I want to read you a poem by Alden Nolan called The Rights of Manhood. And although it's called The Rights of Manhood, and it's about the naive man, I think we know this state and the process of moving beyond it goes beyond gender. The Rights of Manhood It's snowing hard enough that the taxis aren't running. I'm walking home, my night's work finished, long after midnight, with the whole city to myself, when across the street I see a very young American sailor standing over a girl who's kneeling on the sidewalk and refuses to get up, although he's yelling at her, to tell him where she lives so he can take her there before they both freeze. The pair of them are drunk, and my guess is he picked her up in a bar, and later they got separated from his buddies, and at first it was great fun to play at being an old salt at liberty in a port full of women with hinges on their heels. But by now, he wants only to find a solution to the infinitely complex problem of what to do about her before he falls into the hands of the police or the shore patrol. And what keeps us from being squalid is what's happening to him inside. If there were other sailors here, it would be possible for him to abandon her where she is and joke about it later. But he's alone, and the guilt can't be divided into small, forgettable pieces. He's finding out what it means to be a man and how different it is from the way that only hours ago he imagined it. And that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making, and keep the mystery in your life alive. Mm-hmm.